Hello and welcome to another episode of Brave UX. I'm Brendan Jarvis, Managing Founder of The Space In Between, the home of New Zealand's only specialist evaluated UX research practice and world-class UX lab, enabling brave teams across the globe to de-risk product design and equally brave leaders to shape and scale design culture. Here on Brave UX, though, it's my job to help you to put the pieces of the product puzzle together. I do that by unpacking the stories, learnings, and expert advice of world-class UX design and product management professionals. My guest today is Indy Young. Indy is an independent qualitative data scientist, problem space researcher, coach, and consultant. She's also a globally recognized leader in inclusive product strategy and the author of two, soon to be three, groundbreaking design books. A true UX pioneer, Indy invented several of the tools that designers around the world use to make sense of themselves, their products, and the people they're designing for. If you've used opportunity maps, mental model diagrams, and more recently, thinking styles, you can thank, you can thank Indy for those. Her books, Practical Empathy and Mental Models, have helped design and product people around the world to create more human-centered experiences and to understand in practical terms what it means to put people before technology. Her new book, Time to Listen, comes out soon, and you can find out more about the book on Indy's website, which is indyyoung.com books. Before becoming an independent consultant, Indy was a founding partner of Adaptive Path, one of North America's most well-known user experience agencies. A leading advocate of starting with a problem space, listening deeply, and properly handling qualitative data analysis, Indy is a titan in the field of UX research. She is also vibrant, eloquent, and clearly a generous contributor to the global design community, and it's my pleasure to be speaking with her on Brave UX today. Indy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Brendan. That was an awesome intro. And I have to say that title that I use, Qualitative Data Scientist, oh my gosh, the whole keyword search engine twigs to data scientists. They think I'm a totally different thing. People <laughs> will reach out to me, oh, please come be a data scientist for us. And I'm like, this is my chance to set the story straight. It's not that <laughs> and remind kind. You, yeah. yeah, yeah. And remind you that like keyword searches don't work. Come on. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> Why do we trust them? <laughs> well, that's a very good question. And while you consider yourself to be a qualitative data scientist these days, amongst other uh, other things, you started your professional life out as a software engineer at the Hughes Aircraft Corporation. Now, that's a, well, was, because I think it closed in 1997. It yeah. yeah, it doesn't exist anymore. It was an aerospace and defense contractor, which was founded by the infamous Howard Hughes. I was curious about your time there and what that was like as a first job. What comes to mind when you think back to that sort of first job out of university about the company and the sort of things that you were working on? I was one of the first female mountain bikers on campus. Mountain biking had just been, but had just been born while I was in college. And so I loved mountain biking. I didn't want to take a job. Like I had gotten a job offer 
at this place where I had interned, which was around the block from where my parents lived. <laughs> so like, I want to go somewhere new, somewhere where I don't know the names of the streets. And I'd gotten a job offer from the supercomputer center down in San Diego. And I thought, oh, that'd be really cool. But then I looked at the apartment prices and I would have had to like rent an apartment way far away. And I thought, well, that's fine. I can windsurf to work. <laughs> Down the coast. Love it. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> well, it turns out the other one that I got was in Denver, Colorado, which is a place of mountains. Or half the state is actually quite flat and full of antelope running around. And the other half of the state is full of mountains. And so I thought, oh, mountain biking. Yeah, I'll, I'll take that job. <laughs> I ended up on a team that was very interesting. We, our first day of work, we kind of came in, there were, I think about six of us and five of us were female. Wow. Software engineers. Yeah. This is back we in the late eighties, right? So this is, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. So this is some time yeah. ago. This is, uh, <laughs> no, shh. Without trying to date you, sorry, Indy. <laughs> that was actually the peak of females graduating with degrees in computer science. No way. Since then, it has gone down. But we're standing there looking at each other. And we're like, what, did they purposely recruit all the female <laughs> computer science graduates? <laughs> this is weird. So anyway, we had great fun. We were put to work. I, I guess you call it now refactoring Fortran program. And we got to do that by taking over the uh, auditorium in some great big building. I don't really have clear memories of this, but we did have an auditorium with a bunch of computers set up. You had to be careful stepping over all the uh, wiring. And we got to bring in our tunes and play them on the auditorium sound system. So <laughs> it was a rocking place. That sounds like Hacker the movie. Hacker's the movie. <laughs> Right. <laughs> and I understand like you, you're working on some pretty intense stuff there. I mean, there's a note in your LinkedIn bio that said there were some fairly impressed generals at one of the things that you'd done during your time there. You know, what, what was that moment we, about? Tell us about that. We, we ended up working at a place with a whole bunch of cubes. So this is past the auditorium stage. And we were working on this defense system and it's such a small piece of it and i had such a small peek into it they called it star wars oh really <laughs> it was supposed to like yeah they were supposed to like be a defense system for missiles coming in mm -hmm. i think that's what they told us we might not be actually on it and so we were writing i was in charge of some data storage or something that piece of it we were writing in what were we writing? We were either writing in Ada or we were writing in C. I don't remember. We did have a Cray supercomputer, <laughs> which as lowly software engineers, we could only get time on at like 1 a.m. So we would have to go in at 1 a.m. The internet was much different then. You couldn't do it from home. And we had, oh, just for fun, we were writing Mandelbrot sets. And what so you is would, a Mandelbrot set? Oh, you got to go look that up. It's okay. A, um, <laughs> It's a mathematical equation that repeats itself and you can make it graph itself out so it looks like a certain graphic image where if you zoom in on some tiny piece of the graphic image, you get it all again. Uh, it's like Brownian music in a way. It just keeps repeating. So we would set that running and the PCs of the era, it took probably about 12 to 16 hours for the program to run. <laughs> so. so you could take the rest of the day off. No, no, we'd run it overnight. Go, ah, right. You know, <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> check it out, go off to work, come back. So it was, yeah, the, the, the general thing though, we were in our cubicle. I remember this particular one. This is actually near the time that I got to meet and hang out with Grady Booch. And so that was very fun. And he actually still remembers that too. So that was hilarious that we actually remember that. But the there was one general that came in and he's like walking around the cube farm. And we're in our cube. We have like four people in our cube, right? And he just wanted to meet the software engineers. And I don't know if he'd heard that they were female and that's why he wanted to meet them <laughs> or what, right? But we were we had our very first Macintosh, you know, this little aquarium. I mean, they make them into aquariums now, but they're little beige things. And we would use that to write up uh, documents with fancy fonts because we were tired of using word perfect, I think it was called. Anyway, he came into our little cube and he like sat on the edge of our little desk and asked us to run through the software that we were writing. <laughs> and and I'm, I have no idea. I have no military background. I'm like, oh, a general, that's somebody important, right? And there was a, one of the women on our team grew up in the military and she was like, she she is usually the most vocal of us and she couldn't speak. <laughs> <laughs> Just an awe of, of this person. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like looking, cause you have the little epaulette things, you know, and I'm like, mm -hmm. are there actually how, stars up there? There are stars up there. I should count the stars. <laughs> the more stars, the more important, right? <laughs> I think so. Yeah. So when I don't you, remember how many stars. When mm. you think about that first, your first couple of jobs, which were both software engineering, how do you feel that early informative part of your career has informed or shaped the way that you think and feel about design? And he's asking interesting questions. I've always felt like I was on the same trajectory from the beginning. Taking me that far back though, I mean, the point at which I left there was the point at which I decided I didn't want to have anything to do with the military industrial complex. And, you know, there were, you'd go to the cafeteria and we were on a base and there were people with their, like, I don't know, what do you call those guns <laughs> slung over their shoulder, you know, getting salad out. And I'm like, dude, you're getting salad dressing on your big fancy gun. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> right. And I'm like, this is wrong. <laughs> I do not want to be in line with a gun at the cafeteria, <laughs> especially with somebody with such little like consciousness of it. Yeah. Totally normalized, right? Yeah. Totally normalized. It was. And so while, you know, the mountain biking was good, I actually got a call from the people that I interned with and they said, Hey, come, come back. We're, we're doing a startup to compete with Cray computer. And we want you. I'm like, little old me? Okay. <laughs> so I come back and that is where I started. They decided that I needed to be in charge of the front end of it. Okay. And that's where I started kind of this whole idea that at that, at that point in time, I mean, that was the point in time where we started using the internet a little bit more. We were like sharing beer recipes on forums, or whatever. <laughs> really meaningful <laughs> content back then, right? Some of it must have been, <laughs> but, but that was the point at which we were, we were writing software for other engineers. I was writing the front end for a, an edit, compile, debug environment. It was basically looking at how a process was done. And not only that, it was a process I did. So it was a, one of my own processes, right? That's the beginning. That was the place where I kind of 
realize that I'm making, I'm making software for myself or I'm making software for a process. And it wasn't until I moved out of that and into, God, it was called Penpoint. It was the very first, it kind of had a touch screen. It was the first tablet. It had a pen and you would, the whole thing behind it was handwriting recognition. You could scribble your notes on it and it would turn it into a document that would then go into a database. And that was the point at which I was working with doctors. I was working with people trying to set up events, event organizers. I was working with all sorts of people who were like, you know, even somebody who runs a moving truck company stopped by my office and want, and, you know, this is going to be really cool for us to be able to use. I, I want some software around it. And so I was writing various pieces of software for people on that thing. And that's where I realized, holy cow, I'm looking at them and trying to figure out their process, but sometimes there isn't a process. Like with a moving company, yeah, there was a process, but with the doctor, you know, there were, there were hospital processes, but as a doctor, you know, what he, it was really interesting. Um, there were actually several doctors who were really interested in this that I got to work with. So that was kind of the beginning of where I realized, hey, there's this world where we write software to represent processes. And we then invested a lot of our time and effort understanding what the edge cases to those processes processes were so that our software could handle it when that context came up. Because it, as an edge case to the process, it's a certain combination of contexts that would, would happen and then this other outcome would be needed or something. So we actually were quite proud of spending a lot of time figuring out what the process edge cases were. With respect to then doing it for other people, it was like... I began to realize I need to understand the, I need to spend more time understanding these people. And so there was a project I was doing for Visa, the credit card company, where they were wanting to upgrade their call center. There was, uh, this was a point in time when if you lost your Visa card, and a lot of people didn't have credit cards at that point in time. They were still using traveler's checks when they were going to other countries. And if you lost your traveler's checks, you lost, you you know, you can call in and have them canceled, but you've lost them. And the bank would try to, re, you know, send some more traveler's checks to another bank or I don't know what. Same thing started happening with credit cards um, as they were getting more and more used. And the, the, it was just so... I needed to understand the call center. I needed to understand how they were working. The management's all like, oh, you know, we've got all these old green screens and these keyboards and people are tab, tab, tabbing between these data fields that are going directly into the database, right? We should upgrade that. And I went in and I spent a couple of days living and working basically in that call center, realized people love tab, tab, tabbing. It was fast. The software didn't require your attention. You could then put your attention on, well, gosh, I need to get up from my cube and walk to the end of the cube corridor <laughs> where they had atlases in various places all around this giant room. And I can look up the atlas for that city where this caller is calling in who's lost their card and say like, ah, you know what? you're staying there and I know that the bank is over here. That's too far for you. You know, could you maybe get me in touch with the, the person running the hotel or something? You know, we, we, maybe we can do a courier drop to the hotel or something. Or I would stand up and look across my cubicle wall, right? And go to some of the other reps and like, hey, didn't anybody 
like deliver something in Lyon just recently. Oh yeah, yeah, it was me. But where did you, you know, where did you put it? And and so there was this communication going on. And there was this sort of like having to figure out a puzzle on behalf of the traveler who lost the card. And the traveler was usually quite distraught. And so you did a lot of calming as a rep. I mean, I was never a rep, but I'm speaking like a rep because I spent time inside their heads. I didn't know that's what I was doing. I was just like, I need to understand the whole process. And I need to understand the all this humanity side to it. So it was interesting because I was working in a really big group where we had some business analysts, we had some database people, and we had some software engineers, and we had me to do the front end. And I came back from that trip, and I actually made a state machine of what what the reps were doing in the call center. And a state machine is a is it's not supposed to represent people, <laughs> but I didn't have any other tools. And so I did, I sort of tried to, it, it, it's a way to run the process by going through a series of steps. That's basically all state machine is. And so what I did was I ran the process and all the edge cases to the process and like the humans talking to each other through the process and tried to capture it all in that description, in that, like in, in all those steps and the ways that those steps worked. As I was doing that, I was also sort of mapping out what, the data it was a relational early relational database and how that had to come together and uh and so in the end I, I gave a presentation about all of this and like people are coming up to me like oh my god you like you solved all the database stuff <laughs> we don't have anything to do except implement it oh i'm like oh <laughs> i mean maybe they had to do some back-end stuff and the software architects are all like, oh, we know what to do now. This is this is exactly what we, oh my God, you solved it all. We couldn't, somebody came to me after that project, you know, a few years after that project, they're like, we couldn't have done it if you hadn't done that. We truly couldn't have done it. That was kind of a, you know, just a step in the whole trajectory, right? It's a, a the awakening of indie. <laughs> yeah, you, you sort um, of realize the the power of that curiosity and actually spending time with the mm -hmm. people that were responsible for the process. And I know that people are really important to you. They're certainly important to themselves and to design and the products and experiences we put out there. And I recently watched a talk that you gave called People, Purpose, Patterns and Problem Space. And that was a really challenging talk and in a positive sense for me. It certainly made me think a lot. And you took us back to the dawn of software and you've touched on it just in your previous story about how we shape software experiences to try and like make software to represent a process or make a process more efficient to, to do something that humans were already doing. And that the, there are a lot of, uh, gray areas in that that you touched on there with that call center that exist outside of the software. But what is it that's led us to an industry, so a software engineering or development design industry that's so obsessed with solutions? Oh, I don't think it's just us that's obsessed with solutions. We're we're humans. We grew up in a culture. I would I I would say most of Western culture is about solving things when. We were little, we were, you know, told to have the right answer for the teacher, um, to do your homework. When we got to university and started writing, you know, theses and, and things like that, we were, we we're trying to 
prove that we had something, that we had learned something. We got our first job. We wanted to contribute to the team. We wanted to prove our worth, right? And the way we do that is to have answers or ideas. And both answers or solutions and ideas, they both fall into the solution space. You're in both of these cases, you're solving things. So it's not just software, it's business, it's architecture, it's working in the cafeteria, it's cooking, it, you know, cooking starting to shade more into the art. Um, and the art side is slightly different because you're not necessarily solving a problem there. That's different. You're expressing a concept. And so there's uh, like cooking and, and even news, writing news and stuff is slightly is shading into art. So with respect to the solutions, though, I think that we're, we're very much primed throughout our lives to like step off the mark, to leap into the air with the first direction being, here's an idea here's an idea. Here's another idea. All of these ideas are solutions. We forget that we are making those ideas based on assumed understanding of other people, things that we've read, things that people have told us. We haven't been those people. And yeah, some of the time that's fine. Some of the time the risk is really low and we don't need to go be those people or, or build empathy with them. We can, we can work based on the existing understanding uh, that's already out there of these people. But I think that's a really important question. It's uh, one of the things that product owners push back on. They're like, oh, researchers just always want to research. I'm like, well, good research. <laughs> good researchers don't just always want to research. They would much rather sit down and read a nice book. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> the question about how much risk is involved in not knowing, in using existing knowledge, in not exploring those assumptions, ask that question. If we don't ask that question, then yeah, I see a lot of teams leaping into research that isn't really necessary. Or worse, I see teams leaping into research based on a tool, not based on the knowledge needed. They're like, oh, this worked really well last time. Let's do it again. And that, that's like, you know, first, you've got to figure out what your org goal is. Second, you've got to figure out what knowledge is going to support that org's goal. And like, does that knowledge already exist? Do we have to go make new knowledge? Ah, okay, what's the risk? Ah, maybe it's high. Uh, so yeah, we'll go make new knowledge. That's that's a lot of if statements in the branching tree there. Okay, so now we're going to go make knowledge. To make this knowledge, which tool should we use? That sounds like a lot of hard work for people to do. You mentioned the sort of modern education complex, at least in the West that we have, that inherently gives us a fear of being wrong, which, and again, I'm sort of making some assumptions here or reflecting on my own behavior, makes people reach for the first thing that feels comfortable to them. So that could be a tool or a process that they've used before. You're asking people to take a breath and to think critically about what the next step should be. And a lot of your work revolves around the problem space which again is more uncomfortable for people than the solution space. What are the the ways or the 
the techniques that you've used or the beliefs or practices that you'd encourage to help people become more comfortable suspending their need to be right or be seen to be right to really get in under the hood and explore some of these challenges that their organizations are facing? I think the first answer is to have a yes and mindset. What we're doing with the solutions and all of the ways that we come up with solutions have have matured a lot. They're not completely mature, but they've matured a lot over the last three decades. It's not wrong to do them. It's a yes and, and let's think critically about it. Like before we go leaping off over there, whether it's to make a solution or whether it's to get, you know, create some research, some knowledge, let's create some knowledge with research tools before we go leaping off. Let's, let's, you know, just ask ourselves some questions about it. Is this the right thing to do now? Exactly who are we going to look at? Uh, why are we doing it? How does it connect to the org's goal? It has to connect to an org's goal. If it doesn't connect to the org's goal, there's no reason to do it. Um, and I think that's a lot of the, the problem that practitioners face is if their product owners and their stakeholders are all like, just do it, you know, just quick, go, we need this answer. And, and, and so we're left, but, 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 you know, <laughs> but we see this greater, greater, greater understanding that's possible. And they're like, understanding, uh, you know, we don't need it. Just go. One of the things that I try to do with the problem space is it's just, just a little bit more balance into that, what you're calling, you know, just a pause, a breath, a little bit more understanding of like, what is the risk? Let's try to ask ourselves that. What's the risk of not knowing? Um, and I think the, I, I think ahead of that is that most people have gotten into software design or digital design or web design or, you know, even service design, they have gotten there from other careers and they have not been taught to like, okay, there's a business goal. What do we need to know? What are our blind spots? What are our assumptions? Where are we harming people? Okay. So there's two things that fall out of that. So the first answer is yes, and it's just a little bit more balance. It's just a little bit more, a little bit more. You don't do this all the time. The other part of it is that you're going to narrow it down. You're going to basically, you know, if you've ever seen a perspective drawing as somebody was drawing it and they grid things out and they have these lines that converge and stuff, what we're trying to do is grid things out and go like, let's focus here. Let's not focus there yet. Let's focus here so that we can do what is possible with the resources we have and have a really good outcome that will help us sustainably get to that next square. So many people just like, oh, I want to know it all. And you have to give me the answer to everything, you know, in, in three weeks. <laughs> yeah, there's, all, certain... there's always the pressing deadline. And you, yeah. you, you touched on their designers coming from varied backgrounds and not necessarily having the the business sort of context to look at organizational goals and understand what's driving those pressures on other stakeholders within the business you know management and and also shareholders if it's a for-profit enterprise often are really comfortable with numbers hard data you know things that they consider facts but they're far less comfortable with qualitative 
data, things that they consider to be thoughts and feelings and not necessarily as reliable as the, as the numbers. Is it, is it really enough for us to expect that business stakeholders are going to take qualitative data seriously enough to feel comfortable making big decisions that have far-reaching consequences? So don't talk about it as qualitative data. <laughs> <laughs> Sneaky trick. <laughs> right, right. Uh, there's two There's two things. One is to build relationships. So many of us are very introverted and building relationships, especially with those stakeholders who give us stupid deadlines, does not feel comfortable. However, that is the direction that is most reliable for developing a trust relationship. We're not here to develop qualitative data. We are here to help those stakeholders achieve the goals or at least tear the blindfolds off their eyes to see the goals better, to define the goals better. We need to define those goals better because we're doing a lot of harm. And harm is the second part, relationships and harm. And I think if we can start to uncover the stories of harm within like completely, you know, areas where the stakeholders will be like, well, how, we're not harming anybody. We're not, you know, uh, an insurance company that's charging people based on their zip code or postal code. And, and it turns out that we don't charge people in expensive postal codes that much. We're, we're doing, I don't know, help desk software. What could go wrong with that? So you bring the stories of harm. You bring the story of, you know, the female voice uh, help desk person who literally a quarter of the time has the people interacting with her doubt what she says. Like, nope, the internet must be down. She's like, nope, it's up. Nope, you're wrong, right? <laughs> so it's these little stories of harm that I think if we can bring them up as we are developing year over year, trust relationships with those very stakeholders that we don't want to like, there is a way to develop trust relationships with them. And that is through listening listening sessions to try to understand like, okay, first of all, are we speaking at surface to one another? Are we giving each other commands or opinions or explanations? That's all at surface. Or are we getting to depth? Like, well, what actually went through your mind there? And where did that come from? Like you just told me, hey, at my last job, we did jobs to be done and it worked great. So we're going to do it here. You just told me a command at Surface to use a tool without regard of what knowledge we need. Um, so I'm going to say, well, let's go back to that other job. And I'm going to try to uncover why it worked well and why it was chosen. And eliminate for that person what kind of knowledge it was that was needed and illuminate for that person whether that knowledge that's needed now for us in this org is the same kind of knowledge. Help, just to help. You said that that technique is listening deeply and yeah. that sounds easy to do, right? Like that sounds, I'm just going to listen to you. We all know how to listen, don't we? 
but I suspect that there's a little bit more to it than the, those two words suggest. What does it really mean to listen deeply? And how do we do that to understand someone's inner thinking in such a way that we learn something that can be useful for a business decision? Well, in the context of a podcast, I cannot tell you the entire answer. <laughs> we haven't got time, people. <laughs> we, ha we have a book coming out and I have a course that's mm -hmm. available right now online. But you're right. I alluded to the most important part, which is recognizing whether you're speaking at surface or depth. The reason why that's important is that what we're trying to do is understand what went through somebody's head. If we had a telepathy server and we could record everything that went through their mind as they were trying to accomplish their purpose, we wouldn't have to talk to them. We wouldn't have to do a listening session. I don't know anybody who has a telepathy server yet. Um, <laughs> I'm sure Elon Musk is working on one. Yeah, nor anybody who would want to like sign away their privacy. <laughs> Well, we do that every day, so. <laughs> but not on our mind. True. Thank God. Yeah. Um, any, the last, you know, the last frontier. Um, so so the, I mentioned something right in there that's also very important, which is the word purpose. Mm. When we go to understand somebody, business especially, they'll be like, people are really complex and complicated and they change their minds. And it just, you know, that's part of the reason I don't trust qualitative data. And um, when it, one of the problems is, is I, I think a lot of people still come out of university thinking that quantitative data is one end of the spectrum and qualitative data is the other end. And they're all like, this is trustable and that's wishy-washy. Uh, whereas they're completely different spectrums and they both have uh, a, an empirical trustable end and they both have a sort of wishy-washy end, which is more anecdotal. So the idea with qualitative data is that we're looking for patterns. We're not looking for anecdotes. We're not looking for the one-off stories. The one-off stories are how we may communicate some of the patterns that we find, but that's not what we're looking for. We're looking for patterns. What kind of patterns are we looking for? We have to look for patterns in a way that that will that, that, that give us the chance for patterns to form, right? We have to look at them framed by some sort of context and framed by whether they're speaking at surface or depth. So what I do is I frame by the context of purpose and I look for people speaking at depth. The three things at depth are people's inner thinking, emotional reactions, and guiding principles. And the inner thinking, oh my God, it's that little voice inside your head, right? It's this, the, the one that's going like, I don't know about this, or God, how, how can I figure that, how can I work around this? Or I really want to do that, but is just maybe right, not now, you know, and, and, and the, the, the motivations and all of the stuff that's going through your head as you're trying to address a purpose, that purpose might be something that you get done in an hour. It might be a purpose that you do over the course of a year or over the course of your lifetime. And for the so purposes of people listening, what is mm -hmm. it that you define a purpose to be? What is a purpose in this context? Yeah, it's so it is the one thing that 
I have the most fun teaching. I teach a course on framing your study and it's a four week course. And in week three, people are suddenly like holding the side of their heads going, all along, I've been looking at this through the lens of the solution. <laughs> Still, <laughs> now I see it. <laughs> so the purpose is not easy to see because we've all been trained to look at per uh, solutions. Mm -hmm. So a person's purpose could be, let's say I was doing a, a study for an airline and we did a whole bunch of different studies. One, I mean, you know, the airlines are like, oh, let's just understand passengers. I'm like, you can't do it that way. Let's understand what goes through a person's mind when they decide to take a trip. That's a purpose. Let's go through someone's mind when they decide. And, and taking a trip could be by train. It doesn't have to be by plane. It could be by car, right? May we need to further ratchet it down to a certain context, like a trip to meet with somebody or a, a trip to attend an event that happens at a certain time, uh, like a wedding or a trip to, you know, uh, a, a last minute trip that you didn't plan on. So there's a whole bunch of different contexts, right? So we did a bunch of studies where we were looking at deciding to go on a trip in different contexts um, and finding patterns in there. The, um, the purpose could though, be much larger. Like there was this one where we, we wanted the, the business goal was to help people build self-confidence. Sure. There's a lot of literature out there about how you build self-confidence, but they had a very specific group they were interested in. So within that specific group, we wanted to understand how people had built confidence. A purpose is not something that you want. It is something that you did. Okay. So I was just talking to, um, per Axbom and, uh, the, um, UX podcast last week or the week before. And he's all like, okay, so when I'm coaching people half the time, they get partway through the coaching. They're like, you know, that's not what I actually wanted to do after all. It's really this, that's where I should be headed. And I'm like, that's not a purpose uh, in terms of something that you did. I study what went through someone's mind that is in the past tense on purpose because we don't have telepathy servers, nor do we have any way to predict what our thinking is going to be in the future. So it sounds like a purpose is the pursuit of an outcome. Sure. You can call it by, that's the other part of the yes and. <laughs> Use whatever <laughs> words you want. <laughs> right. Sometimes, sometimes your purpose could be a goal mm. where like you maybe paint stars around it and put a date on it or something. Sometimes it's not, right? You know, raising good kids. That's a purpose. That's a very broad purpose. So we would want to narrow it down in various ways. The purpose of, um, of gaining self-confidence, we actually talked to people who had gone through a personal identity change and that took a lot of self-confidence. So we learned what that, what the pieces of it were that way. So we were finding the patterns that way. You spoke about not referring to qualitative research to business stakeholders as qualitative research and thinking about the work that you're doing and trying to understand people's purposes and their thinking styles and what they're trying to achieve. So you can see patterns makes a lot of sense. How, once you've conducted your research, and you've, you've done your deep listening and you feel like you've gathered that information, that data, 
how do you actually show and tell that story back to the business in a way that compels them to act differently? So I'm not a believer in just going to tell stories. Business loves a good graph. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it does. Yes, it does. (laughs) You can make any graph you want. They will love it. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So I make a couple of graphs. One of these graphs is called the opportunity map. And it is different than a journey map. A journey map is the interaction of a person with your solution. Oftentimes journey maps fail to specify a purpose. So it's really vague and wishy-washy. They also fail to specify a thinking style or another word for it is a persona, um, a philosophic approach to this purpose. And so journey maps, are completely 100% in the solution space. They're, they're only looking through the little aperture of the solution. And they're wishy-washy in those two ways that I just said. They don't state a purpose and they don't state which, which persona or which thinking style you're after. So an opportunity map turns things on the head. I don't care what the solution is. I care what the person is thinking as they're trying to accomplish their purpose. So it's all the thinking that a person has done and, you know, decisions that they've made and the philosophies that they've applied and the emotions that they've encountered and and all of that turns out to be a graph that looks like a city skyline. And layered on top of that graph are, it's like a bunch of you know, skyscrapers, towers, they have a bunch of windows in there. Those windows actually have little summaries of each thing that person was thinking or feeling or deciding grouped based on focus of mental attention. So there's our patterns. It's also layered over with which thinking style is uh, apparent in each window. So it looks like, you know, a bunch of apartment windows and a little person inside each apartment window or a couple of people inside of a an apartment window. And then beneath these towers are all the things that our org and maybe our competition does in support of these towers. So I'm flipping it instead of us saying, well, here's our whole journey that we did. No, there's the person's journey accomplishing their purpose. Which parts of it are we supporting? And that's where you get to do your gap analysis. That's where you get to go like, oh my gosh, we thought we were supporting this area and we're only doing a a, a weak job of it (laughs) or worse. And you can see it, right? You can see it. Yeah, you can see it. You can see it. Mm. On top of this, now what I do is I'm what I'm trying to do is give product owners a way of looking over the past 5, 10, 20 years, how much better we're getting. So for each one of these towers, I've got a graph so that the, the tower itself disappears and you've got just the, the towers that this particular product owner is interested in, right? Not the whole thing, just there, what they're working on. The towers fade out and you still have that vertical, but when you get above the line, you're actually supporting somebody. The higher above the line, the stronger. And when you're below the line, you're actually harming them. Close to the line, it's mild harm. Farther away from the line, it's systemic harm. And I have an example where 
it's a it's an agency, a government agency that's um, trying to support employers who are trying to hire people with disabilities. And there's a law in the U.S. about hiring people with disabilities, so it's connected to the government. Um, and there's systemic harm in there. There is systemic harm in there. And if I can then show them that, you know, that part, that little block of the city, right, that that product owner is interested in, fade that out and show them where the harms are and who's being harmed in what area, they can suddenly suck in their breath and go like, oh, well, that's important. Or they can go, that's actually not important to us right now, but this is. And is this when you start to shift into, well, what do we do about that? We start to shift into solutions. You've sort of narrowed the focus yeah. for that person and yeah. put forward that platform for then solutions to be generated. Yes, exactly that. What I do with the thinking styles is also create discrimination lenses, lenses mm -hmm. sorry, and also physiology lenses so that we're asking, we're, we actually include that in our research, so, or at least in the framing of our research, so that we're, we're showing uh, more clearly what the harms are. Most organizations out there only think of harms in terms of mild frustrations. Um, they don't think of harms in terms of, oh, say, productivity lost. I had a really good example of this about 45 minutes ago. Yes, we did. We, we had some technical <laughs> right. difficulties, didn't we, Indy, getting on the podcast? We, we did, yeah. And so, you know, that harm, poof, it's just a little puff cloud that nobody in that organization pays attention to. It's not even on their map. Whereas in my opportunity map, it shows. It's like, okay, yeah, we're not ready to handle that particular context yet, but it's there and it's going to haunt us until we figure it out. And yeah, we're going to figure it out in two years, but well, we'll get there. Well, I hope they figure it out sooner. So just to give some context <laughs> to people that are watching or listening to this episode, it took us 30 minutes to resolve those technical difficulties, which has actually robbed you, the listener, of 30 minutes of Indy telling you about her practices and her thinking. So that has harmed us in some way because we may never know where, where else we may have gone. And do you want to know the vendor that did the harm? <laughs> they're called, I'm sure everybody does. They're called it's, Riverside. They're called, no, they're not called Riverside. Oh, okay. They're called McAfee. Ah. Now, secondarily, they're called Riverside, but McAfee is that security system or whatever. So Riverside starts off going, we don't support any browsers except Chrome. I'm all like, okay, I'm going to go unearth my old laptop, which has Chrome on it. That old laptop wakes up and its old McAfee system goes, oh, you have to resubscribe <laughs> and I'm going to take over your whole computer. <laughs> I'm going to extort you and your credit card and then I'll let you go when you pay me. Exactly. Yeah, it wasn't <laughs> oh helpful. So when we think about harm and the harm that our work can cause, that can mean many different things and there are various levels as we've just talked about with our technical difficulties that we've had. When we think about the things that have been in the media recently around big tech and the path that we may be on as it relates to big data, 
algorithms and how they are used to make decisions. What does that destination look like to you? Where are we heading? Hmm. <laughs> I could be a doom and gloom person, or I could be a, you know, a cheerleader, you know, like, like if we actually are alive in another 10 years. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. So we won't go that way. Oh, we can, we, look, the, honestly, we can go wherever I mean, you want to go. Seriously. We're in, we're in this situation where I just saw the other day, was it, was it YouTube? Yeah, it was YouTube. Finally. Okay. This is around the coronavirus. They're finally like in October of 2021 saying, oh, you know what? We're going to ban the production of misinformation in these videos. And we're going to ban a couple of these big antivirus uh, proponents on YouTube. And I'm like, I'm going to try to say this without swearing. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we can just put an explicit warning on the episode. Right. <laughs> it's like, where were you guys 18 months ago? You knew this was wrong. You knew that people were spreading misinformation. I mean, maybe the vaccine thing didn't come along 18 months ago, but people were spreading misinformation. Now people are spreading misinformation about like the vaccine. It's uh, it's going to, you know, like make you infertile or whatever. And, and there are I know some crazy people, theories, yes. Yeah. And I know like my best friend's sister believes this. Yeah. Yep. And she's even past childbearing age. Right? So, okay. So where were they? Is big tech, Back in, is big tech morally yeah. bankrupt? Big tech has no brain part. It doesn't have the synapses for morality. Ah, I'm saying that because there was, okay. Uh, big tech is not to say software engineers. Software engineers tend to be people who really, truly want to make a solution, fix things, right? And they, they think of themselves as <laughs> the, the hero, right? I was going to say as the swashbuckler in The Princess Bride, but that may be putting too fine a point on it. <laughs> <laughs> also, there, there's a purist... Like that, what, what that pride that we had in figuring out what the process edge cases were, um, there's this purest bent to a software engineer. It's like I gotta figure it out, and there's got there's like all these ways, you know. I wanna I wanna understand what all the branches of the tree are and explore them. That's not big tech. Big tech is powerful people with a lot of money. They saw the potential to make even more money out of that, and they took the reins. Software engineers couldn't do anything about it because they weren't the ones with all the money. Now, sure, there are still a lot of software engineers who believe in meritocracy. I believed it when I was young. It's like, oh yeah, if you, if you, you know, are able to produce and come up with solutions, then you know you have merit. But not everybody is given the same starting point. Not everybody is given the same resources. So not everybody can be measured by that same meritocracy kind of a yardstick. It doesn't work that way. And, you know, then how, how are you going to measure art? <laughs> so should you just, measure art? <laughs> right? Mm. It, it is it is very narrow aperture view of what a true community and society is. 
um, which is a much bigger thing. Big tech, meaning big money, who came in, because they are running based on free market economy, because they are believe of themselves that they are required by their state, their shareholders to just keep making money year over year, which belief I think you can question, um, but they're not going to question it. Um, that's just their mode. They're like a virus themselves, eating, 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 growing bigger, making different <laughs> variants <laughs> of themselves. They don't behave or have a mindset to behave in a holistic or an ecology kind of a system, right? It, it's, it's very uh, similar and could have roots in colonialism, but it doesn't pay attention to history. It doesn't pay attention to harm. It doesn't pay attention to anything except the, the, uh, I would I would say like the money right that's putting it, saying it too wishy washy it is very much the 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 end goals for each year year over year and how much they're making so you find companies like Google like Facebook like you know Twitter like uh, all of these places that measure their success by having more people see more uh, content. <laughs> I'm not quite sure I would want to even call it content. <laughs> it's like beer recipes, right? That's better content than half the stuff that's on Facebook. <laughs> but um, what happens is that people learn what the algorithms are and game the algorithms to put their misinformation out there. That's what humans do. We love puzzles. We undo the puzzles and we've won. And then we can do what we want with the new keys that we have to the puzzle. So thinking about puzzles then, mm -hmm. a lot of your work centers around understanding the problem space. And we've just been talking about the moral bankruptcy of big tech, which in essence is big business run amok. Are you at all worried that giving organizations a greater understanding of people's problem space may be exploited in a way that leads to even greater harm? That's a really good question that you came up with there, Brendan. I believe that the way that I've built it is all built toward the word support. There's no reason to use what I've built if you're not interested in supporting people. Um, this is very much not behavioral science, quote unquote, or behavioral, whatever they want to call it. Um, they're all like, oh, well, it has, you know, the dark patterns and the bright patterns. Um, so it can go, it can be used for good and evil. I might be putting my foot in my mouth by saying, I don't think you would ever reach for the, the opportunity map if you were aiming for evil. I mean, maybe you could, but let's take an example, maybe like with the airline, let's say with respect to the airline, the passengers they were interested in, there, there's also uh, at that same airline now, they're looking at uh, the employees as well. How do we support our employees better? How do we support the passengers better? Um, the reason that question came up was because of these really odd behaviors that come up 
out of loyalty programs. People who were just making, they had enough money that they would make flights and sit on the plane and bounce around the nation. They didn't care where they were going and no do their way. work. No way. You're kidding way. me. Wow. I am not. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I don't. <laughs> yeah, well, apart from the carbon cost, yeah. Exactly. I hate the carbon footprint. I I hate all of that. And I, I think the airline was starting to realize that, you know, their resources were being used improperly as well. You know, they're, they're very, very thin margins. They're very dependent on, like, the cost of fuel. Uh, they're very dependent on weather. Um, and we're like, hey, you know, how can we take our understanding of weather based on not forecasts, but past and make different predictions to say to a passenger, oh, you know what? You probably don't want to connect in the Chicago airport if you could instead connect in, I don't know, Denver or something that particular time of year. So there's like routing and stuff, decisions that we could possibly do to help a person not get stuck in an airport to help that person not rail against that airline also to help these these loyalty programs like they <laughs> people are gaming them <laughs> that's what we do we game things and so they're gaming them so that they can always get first class just by like constantly being on planes and doing their work on planes and sometimes things game us Right. <laughs> exactly. I think that's what came back and hit them in the face. And um, I, I think that like if I were using that example to ask, can it be used for evil? Can it be used to like say, how do we cram more people into a plane? You wouldn't use that tool to figure out how to cram more people into a plane. How, how do we delay people more? You wouldn't use that tool to figure out how to delay people. In fact, they don't want to delay people. That's not, I mean, it's not a thing that they often have control over, but with the knowledge we've got, I think we can have more control than we do. I was going to say the idea of having a particular flight at a particular time between particular airports, the airline is forcing us as passengers to understand their business model. But if they're instead understanding the passenger's business model, there's a lot more leeway. A passenger may not care if their flight's going to leave at 10 a.m. or 11.30 a.m. They just need to know in enough advance to get to the airport on time. Mm. Right. And mm. so you can do some you can do some movement with schedules, with routing based on more up to date data. Yeah. Speaking about routing and schedules and not delaying people, I am conscious that you've been very generous with your time today, Andy, and I really need to bring the show down to a close to respect that time. The vast majority of people working in product or service design and technology more generally really feel like they're actually working on things that make a meaningful difference in other people's lives that make their lives feel better or be better. You have even go so far to you've even gone so far to say that people feel trapped in endless cycles of releases. How can they escape those traps? What's your message for those designers? That is the same message that I said before, which is develop those trust relationships. If it is impossible, if you are in a situation, and I've heard people say these situations are toxic, then understand what your options are. 
you may need a different job, or maybe you have other options to talk with other stakeholders who may be able to talk with the toxic st stakeholder, or maybe you yourself can talk with them, find out where it comes from. Where does that toxicity come from? I'm not asking you to be a therapist, <laughs> but <laughs> I'm asking you to be a little bit more accommodating of the humanity of other people. When we get into a business situation, it's like we all pretend to be robots. Like we're going to be robots and let the, the Amazon robot um, algorithm make us do our thing and have no emotions and no relationship to one another. And I don't think we have to be that. Every business, every team is a community. And if we don't do the work it takes to form the connections of that community, then it's, it's going to just like, you know, <laughs> the arc of the community will bend toward toxicity if we don't work on it. That's a really important challenge or a thing for people to think about is bringing more humanity to, to those situations and yeah. using our powers as designers to enable that to happen. Do some deep listening, people. Yeah. Indeed. And I've, I've, I've seen it myself, right? It's not easy, mm. but I am not in a situation as a consultant mm. where I can have, you know, month over month, year over year conversations with the same person, but listening and finding out where things came, come from and, and understanding deeper what their inner thinking is, pin that back in time. One of the things that I love to do is talk about people as Chinese dragons. And you know the face of a Chinese dragon? That's the big interesting part. And in a, in a Chinese New Year's parade, you know, that if you get to be the dragon's head, you're a, you're a chosen one. Um, because that's the big interesting part. And it's got the really long serpentine body behind it. When we are interacting with people in work, in our communities, what we're talking about in the now is just with the face of the dragon. And if we don't ask about the rest of its body, we're not giving it its humanity, right? It's dragonness. We're just bumping up our, uh, bumping our bubbles together, I think is another analogy yeah. that you've used. Yeah. We're not really yeah. getting into the real reasons why. Andy, what a wonderful and truly deep conversation. <laughs> it's certainly pulled my mind in very different directions, uh, which has been a really great way actually to start my morning here. On behalf of people listening to the episode, thank you for so bravely encouraging us to think bigger and more broadly about the roles that we play as designers in the world. Yeah, my pleasure. I think that we can, you know, the, the, the cheerleader part of me, <laughs> I think if we can build these communities, you know, from the bottom up, we can really influence the way that our organizations think about the people we're trying to support. Hugely important. Andy, I also wanted to say thank you for your massive contribution to the field of UX and design and technology over the past 30 years. Yay, thank you. <laughs> and thanks for going back to your very first job with me in, 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 the, in, the, in, the, in the Hughes Corporation. Much, much appreciated. Andy, if people yeah, want to find hilarious. out more about you, and I know you've got a new book coming out that I mentioned in your intro, what's the best way for them to do that? My website has a bunch of stuff. It's always the, the sort of like a little bit behind where my talks are. And so I've got a bunch of talks uh, and podcast links up on the website. 
you can look at those. I used to write a lot of essays on Medium under inclusive software design. That's also linked there. And you can follow me on LinkedIn and on Twitter uh, via Indie Young. Perfect. Thanks, Indy. And to everyone that's tuned in, it's been great having you here as well. Everything that we've covered, including where you can find Indy and all of her wonderful books and talks and previous podcast episodes will be in the show notes on YouTube. If you enjoyed the show and you want to hear more great conversations like this with world-class leaders in UX design and product management, don't forget to leave a review and subscribe to the podcast. And also, if you feel like the podcast might be useful for someone else that's a designer or a technologist in your sphere, then pass the link along and share it with them. If you want to reach out to me, you can find me on LinkedIn, just type Brendan Jarvis, or you can find a link to my profile in the show notes on YouTube as well, or you can visit The Space In Between, which is thespaceinbetween.co.nz. And until next time, keep being brave. Hey!